HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And spring is finally here, or at least so the calendar says. That's not necessarily what the thermometer says. Uh, And we do know that uh, sprouts will be coming up and asparagus will be pushing up. And, of course, that one sign of spring in all our spring dishes, rhubarb. And... Rhubarb is, it's an interesting uh, food, like so many other foods we're going to find out today, in that it was at first used only as a medicine. And due to the travels and exchanges and trade along the Silk Road, it became a food incorporated into our diets with wonderful dishes. And there are so many interesting t- tales of foods like that that occurred along the, uh, the Silk Road. And here today with me to talk about these flavors and foods is Laura Kelly. And Laura is a food historian, an author, and a scientist. And as a writer and lecturer, she's also an experienced Silk Road traveler. She's the author of The Silk Road Gourmet and writes about cuisines and cultures as a way to share these experiences and passions for food. This book that she wrote several years ago is... is, um, interesting because it's not your usual history book and and although it is history and and culture um, and anthropology uh, but it is by and large a book of recipes which is wonderful because in talking about all these different flavors and the exchange and trade of of foods and spices along the road it's a way to sample them and really then taste what we read about and so many foods uh, so many books have been coming out lately about how the world is, in terms of flavor, is one small place due to this exchange. I'm I'm thinking of Rachel Lawden, who was a guest not long ago with her book, uh, Cuisine and Empire. And I have thoroughly enjoyed this book as well, The Silk Road Gourmet, because, as I say, I get to to taste and cook all these wonderful recipes that come from these different places. So help me in welcoming Laura Kelly. Laura, welcome to the show. 
Hi, Linda. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Laura, I, I first started out with the story of rhubarb because you just wrote uh, uh, a terrific article for Zester, uh, the online magazine, about um, rhubarb. Can you tell us a little bit about that background, just to, just to get us going and set us in place? Uh, sure. Rhubarb has a fascinating history on the Silk Road. Um, we first hear it mentioned in uh, China as a medicine about the 2nd century B.C., and there it was used for malaria and, constip- and, and relieving constipation. Um, it's interesting because... It, Genetic analysis of the plant seems to suggest that it arose in Tibet, but that it naturalized really quickly across northwestern China and into Mongolia. So that's where the use of rhubarb began. Um, In the West, we see it very early with the ancient Greeks. Um, uh, They're also using it as medicine, so, um, you know, third, second century BCE, it's traveling from China to Greece. And that's through a vast network of small trade routes. It's, you know, going hand-to-hand, 20 to 50 miles or something like that, all the way to ancient Greece. And you have um, uh, Dioscorides, the ancient Greek physician who writes about it, and they're using it as a general purgative. And um, that means... uh, Anything that a purge can help any disease. So, can you can you kind of date when it first started to be used in cooking? Uh, that's a difficult question, actually, because it depends on whether you you want to say east or west. The to the west, and that means basically Europe and the United States. The first recipe we find for it that that's in a published book. It may appear in manuscripts before then, or uh, in oral tradition passed from mother to daughter. But it's around 1807 that Europeans first start eating rhubarb, and um, some people have hypothesized that's when sugar, you know, sugar becomes widely available, or actually sugar prices were rising and falling quite dramatically around that time, depending upon where your sugar was coming from, whether it was um, Eastern Asia or the West Indies. So make it a little more palatable and add that sugar, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and Westerners, by and large, are using it in tarts and sweet drinks, and they're sweetening it excessively. And um, not to to calm that sourness. Now, if you want to talk about East, we really don't know um, when the recipe arose. But there are some traditional dishes in northern Iran, near Mashhad, and all across Central Asia. I've seen it in Turkmenistan and also in Tajikistan. They have a lamb and rhubarb stew. So. Um, it's possible that they're using that that they were finding naturalized rhubarb that became naturalized over the years of Silk Road trade, or that they were deliberately seeking it out as food. Mm-hmm. But they're they're harnessing the sour properties of rhubarb, much as one would add lemon juice or orange juice today, uh, or lime juice to a curry or some other recipe to um, give it or tamarind to give it that little pucker. Well, now, um, you have, as you um, said in your, as you say in your blog, that you have traveled extensively on the Silk Road, and a lot of people have these ideas of of the Silk Road, or the Silk Route, as they say, being, you know, a spice trading route only, but why don't you describe for us what your, what you you consider the Silk Road, geographically and culinarily? 
Sure. Um, the term is uh, largely a 19th century, early 20th century term, and it was incorrectly used to describe what they believed was one or two trading routes from China to Europe, basically, or to the edge of Western Asia, where you could hit, you know, um, then drop goods into the Black Sea. What the Silk Road really is, is this vast network all across the old world, and that includes Asia, um, Eastern and Northern Africa, and into Europe, at land and maritime routes where people are merchants or trading at short distance or long distance. And sometimes you'll have colonies of traders. Um, you had uh, colonies of traders, Chinese, living on the edge of the western edge of India long before, centuries before the Portuguese got there. Um, so goods are moving. You have the famed tea horse road, uh, bringing tea and, uh, and horses, trading tea and horses in western China and into Tibet. So um, goods are moving all over, and people are moving all over, and with goods and foods are moving ideas. So you have exchange of ideas, scientific ideas, you have the movement of religions, uh, trade. This is one of the reasons why Islam spread so quickly, is it was spread, uh, to some degree, it was spread along the trade routes and within the empires that were growing at that mm. time. Well, you um, you said in... in um in your book, that Persia and India were the two big dogs of the East, you want to, as far as the food and, and flavors were concerned. Uh, of the West, yes. Of the certainly. West, I'm sorry. Um, that's okay. Um, uh, yeah, it, because you have the Persians participating in empires that, for instance, the Seljuk dynasty went all the way out to Kyrgyzstan and possibly into western China. We don't exactly know the, the uh, eastern edge of the empire, and that was in the 10th century. So empires were growing and falling. We have the Indians who are uh, consolidating the area much larger than what is now India. I mean, it would be into parts of Burma, possibly over to Afghanistan and, and well into Pakistan. Um, you have the Mughals, which were founded actually by uh, Uzbeks on the run. <laughs> um, they were uh, Timur's uh, descendants from Uzbekistan who came down into uh, into India, and uh, that's how Babur entered India. And um, yeah, they they are their empires are rising and falling all the time, and flavors are being exchanged. So. You get Persianate foods, layering of uh, of uh, good of uh, foods um, in in stew, baked stews or in rices. Um, that's something that the Persians really love. Um, that's that's now you know you, you find that all over. You find these really interesting meat and fruit combinations, mm. which is also a Persian legacy. And that's something that I'm very interested in. You have lamb with sour cherries. You have uh, chicken with apricots. That's uh, beef with apples. Um, we, to, to a great extent, that has unfortunately fallen out of our diets, except for, you know, pigs and apples or something, pork and apples or something like that these mm. days. Mm. But there's a lot of wonderful combinations that the Persians had out there and spread across a good part of the old the old world well it's interesting because it's it's true you can you taste a dish and you, it's almost like a a lesson in anthropology as you're eating a certain dish I mean, like what can you learn from a dish um you taste all these flavors and obviously uh you know you get an idea of trade right well, you know, people don't realize, I mean, what would Asian, Eastern Asian food be without sesame oil, roasted sesame oil? Sesame is actually a product from Africa. 
um, garlic, onions. Those are Central Asia. They were traded and naturalized very, very early in their um, in their uh, history. But still, um, garlic is another great. If you want to uh, to talk about food as medicine, um, like rhubarb, garlic is another great um, topic to talk about because um, it was long used um, as a medicine um, before it really entered. Um, but widespread culinary use. I mean, people would use it in potions and food to eat when they were sick, but um, it, it took a while for it to enter uh, uh, just culinary use without the uh, the dietetic or the medical advantage. Mm, and here it is back again, being used to yeah. <laughs> lower blood yeah, pressure you know, and, and all kinds of things, right? Yeah, Pliny, you know, Roman writer Pliny uh-huh. the Elder, in his natural history, he has 61 remedies based on garlic, everything from skin wounds to asthma to jaundice uh, and tonsillitis. Um, long before him, you have Hippocrates, who, who was using it to help women um, uh, bear placenta after birth. Hmm. And uh, now it's it's you know the cholesterol the anti cholesterol wonder um, right. it has been shown in human and animal trials to um, release the, uh, to reduce total cholesterol and um, there's some claims that it's a um, that it's an anti cold remedy and things like that but the anti cold remedy so far isn't standing up to uh, scientific analysis but the um, anti-cholesterol and anti-triglyceride one is. Uh, there's been some, a, a large meta-analysis by the Cochrane Group, and um, they said, yes, it's better than placebo. So it may not be as great as Lipitor or something like that, but right. it is certainly uh, certainly better than nothing. Well, this cross-continental trade, um, I mean, it's... It's so old that you, as you mentioned, it sometimes uh, has been difficult for botanists to trace a particular region for some of the origins of some of these different spices and flavors. Uh, yeah, uh, that's very true. It's really the modern age of genetic analysis that's allowing us to uh, um, unravel some of these things. Um, in for rub- going back to rhubarb for a moment, um, the uh, a lot of the ancient Greeks thought it came from Turkey or from uh, uh, the Caucasus area in Georgia, what would now be Georgia and southern Russia, where the Amazons, that's the Scythians, lived. Um, it's not until, because that's where they got it from. Um, they didn't realize that it went from China to Uzbekistan uh, and through probably through several other places before it got to Turkey. Hmm, interesting. You have a wonderful chart uh, that you include in um, in your book that, that um, gives the origins of several different ingredients. And then along the bottom you have the different cuisines of other countries and how many of them incorporate those flavors so you can it's it's interesting because it's it's very easy to see all those um those influences um for instance well and then and i guess afghanistan is the one i see that incorporates just about everything um, Azerbaijan. Well, it was ruled yeah. by so many different people, from the <laughs> Buddhists to the Greeks. To it, it wasn't until the 19th century that the Afghanis started to rule their own country, and one could argue that they're not doing that right now. So they're they're ruling Kabul instead. But, right. uh, yeah. And uh, cinnamon, cinnamon, and uh, didn't cinnamon came from Sri Lanka originally? The- yeah, cinnamon has a long and convoluted history, and people don't really understand it. Most of, or the, the general consumer really is not in the know about it. Most cinnamon we see on the shelves labeled cinnamon today is not actually cinnamon. It's something called cassia, mm-hmm. and it's probably from Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in Silk Road times and up until, you know, a couple hundred years ago, true cinnamon, cinnamonum verum, came from Sri Lanka, only Sri Lanka. And uh, the Brits made a large plantation in uh, southern India on, on uh, you know, off the island as well. But um, Sri Lanka was immensely wealthy in antiquity because of the cinnamon trade. They traded it to the Egyptians. The Egyptians used it as perfume in those cones they wore on their head as incense. Uh, they also used it in mummification. Um, and they they had a lot of it. Uh, they, 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 they didn't wipe the Sri Lankans out, but it grows so well along the coast. Um, there's some wonderful writing um, from uh, the, the Dutch, actually, when they took over a part of Sri Lanka, the non-candy part, the kingdom of candy, the non-candy part of Sri Lanka on the west, kind of in the north, too. Um, they said that... It, it's so much, and it grows so well that you can smell it eight leagues out to sea. Huh. <laughs> so, uh, which is fascinating to me. But you know, the, it, it, the cinnamon trade is really kind of cool because you have a um, sort of a buyer beware situation going on. Um, you know, we think that's sort of a modern thing that people or a snake oil thing where people would hype their product in order to charge more for it. But Arab traders and Persian, I mean, well, to, as a small aside, Arab is used too um, bluntly, I would say. I mean, these people could be anything from Levantine to Persian to, you know, lots of different nationalities, and mm -hmm. they're all just lumped into Arab, and many of them, many of them aren't. But, um, so, um, getting back to that, there are all these stories, fantastic, wonderful stories about how difficult cinnamon is to find and how dangerous it is to harvest, um, such that um, uh, these giant bats, like snake-like bats with wings, guard it, and you have to shield your face and body, and it's you know crawl up at the edges of this great lake and connect and and then to try to harvest it. Another one is um, it's uh, guarded by these uh, great predatory birds that will come down and gnash, you know, you know to uh, rip you with their talons. And <laughs> you throw oxen meat out to the birds and distract them and run in and, and harvest it. And what was happening, of course, is that, um, you know, it's all just... It's all just hype for, to, to hype the product. So, but I mean, it still is very expensive. I mean, you know, Pliny records that it costs three hundred denarii for the finest cinnamon in Rome, and that's about ten months' wages per pound. And it became a very, a, a very popular and uh, I'd say ubiquitous almost um, spice to add to many of the of the dishes and the flavors, both yes. both sweet and savory. Yeah, but imagine spending that much wages, yeah. you know, on something like that. And that sort of thing, you know, it decreased over time. But by, I would say, the Renaissance people, about, about the Renaissance or so, it's about 15th, 16th century, people are spending three months' wages on a pound. So, well, you know, the fancy it, it, dinners, it was a way to show your wealth for a fancy it was, dinner, it, for sure. It, it, uh, conspicuous consumption, right, exactly. Right. And we see that happening all through Mary Randolph. I mean, she's using tons of nutmeg in her curry powder in 1824, and nutmeg at the time was not yet um, being imported from the West Indies. It was growing there, but the trees hadn't come to uh, fruition yet, so to import it from uh, the Moluccas was incredibly expensive for right. American colonists. Well, it's interesting. You, you, uh, you wrote something very interesting. You said everyone's national cuisine, that they feel defines them as a people, 
has been influenced by someone else, sometimes extensively. And that certainly proves to be true if you read, uh, you read all these wonderful uh, travels and influences in trade that are going on. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk about some of the recipes that you've written. Okay. Today's music is by Pamela Royal on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I am talking with Laura Kelly. Laura is a scientist and a food historian and author of The Silk Road Gourmet. In fact, she has a blog and a website of the same title, thesilkroadgourmet.com. And Laura, you, as I said at the top of the show, you've included so many wonderful recipes in this um, book and illustrated by your zester piece in zester.com just yesterday. You said that you've listed some of these. You do have, not many people like to admit this, but you, because they want everyone to read everything, but you did say that you have some favorite recipes. And, and how, how can you possibly, out of all those wonderful recipes, say you have some favorite recipes and you've listed them? And tell me about that, why they're your favorite and what they are. Um, well, let's see. Some of the <clears throat> the first volume, first of all, is only Western and Southern Asia. So that kind of, you know, I just wanted to share that with the readers to say that we're not talking about the rest of Asia because um, because the book is the first volume is limited to that. Um, Stay tuned for volume two, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, uh, uh, volume two is more or less written, not edited, but uh, I'm ready. Um, so. I would say that they're they're probably the meat and fruit recipes that I really love. Um, as I intimated before, Ijeri cuisine is often my favorite. That's from Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. um, you know, Iran North. From there, they have this lamb chops with sour cherries that I absolutely adore. The sour cherries are amazing, and they work with the lamb, the savory lamb, in a way that is um, really like nothing else on earth. There's fish with sour cherries, a, a, a large rockfish like we have around here in the Central uh, Central Atlantic um, with sour cherries. Um, from Iran, I took a fowl-based recipe, which is called a fesengin, which is in a pomegranate cardamom sauce um, that is just delicious. And I, I uh, worked with it until I could make it with lamb. And um, you make it with this lamb uh, lamb roast with this wonderful pomegranate, uh, pomegranate cardamom sauce. And um, 
you uh, can put a squash around it, and it's a, a wonderful one-pot meal. So you've got ease of cooking with some fantastic flavor. Mm. Um, I even notice a, a, we are talking about sour cherries and how sour cherries played such a role. Um, you even included sour cherries and beets. Now, that's a terrific combination. I would have never imagined sour cherries um, and beets together. It's great, but you have to eat it right away while oh. it's hot because what will happen is uh, the beets will take over the sour cherries and the bit of vinegar in that recipe will uh, take it over as well. But um, it is, I think the sour cherries and the pomegranate recipes really stand out as my favorite of the favorites. Let's put it that way. And I added that, but the list of favorites in the beginning because very often people will, won't be familiar with the cuisines and rather than troll the contents or the index and try to find something they want to make, they could, you know, try one of those, the ones I described in my favorite section. Mm-hmm. And um, um, and you it, do include things up up and in, into the new world, because I notice you do have tomatoes in, in some of the recipes as well. Well, yes, because the tomato and potato, I mean, the chili peppers, uh, where would Asian cuisine be without that tri- triumvirate? Um, you know, it's all over. Everybody adopted them. Right. Chilies were adopted in a matter of a couple of decades, pretty much, thanks to the Portuguese um, poverty and the fact that the chili will grow anywhere, anytime, and produces multiple crops. Um, you, you have to really try to kill a chili plant. So um, <laughs> <laughs> it'll, 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 it uh, provided a ready food source for people who were very poor uh, very quickly after its importation uh, from the New World. So, yeah, the the Silk Road Gourmet, the volume that's out, focuses on modern cuisines pretty much. So um, if people want to cook some of the historical cuisines that I've done, uh, including the reinterpretations of Mesopotamian dishes from Botero that I've reinterpreted, um, or in some ancient Roman things, uh, they can look on the website. Mm -hmm. Um, a, A colleague of mine, Dina Sidney and I are putting together, together a proposal to do an ancient food book. Oh, so uh, that we may be, you know, uh, um, uh, you may see more of us in print on that subject <laughs> in, the, in the future. Well, so, it, um, it certainly is something that I would look forward to because I, the flavors, it, it's, it's just terrific how the different flavors um, that you combine, even in reading it, I can, I can get a taste and I can get a taste of, of, ancient cuisines and ancient places and it just it, you know you can almost breathe it in just by reading it I have to say you can taste the history there right. you go there you go <laughs> exactly well one of the the other things that, that I liked um, the uh, sentences that I took from from your book was that all cuisines have the peaceful imprint on them of regional or global trade or the more violent tide of war and conquest which of course <laughs> We we do notice a lot where we um, we get all these different flavors, or when foods fall into fa- come into fashion or fall out of fashion, depending on on uh, politics and economics as well. Mm-hmm. And you have oh, I'm sorry, you have a real interesting example in Samarkand during Timur's time. That would be the early 15th century, uh, late 14th and early 15th century, as he was sweeping across Asia. Um, uh, in you know into as far as Turkey from Uzbekistan, um, he was picking the best and the brightest of people and forcing them to come back to Samarkand. So he was building the greatest architects, the greatest scientists. So you had this incredible multi-culty thing going on in Uzbekistan at that time, and um, so people are living in communities in Samarkand and uh, ethnic communities, bringing their wives and children with them, and um, to some degree that. 
ethnic division still exists in Uzbekistan. There's uh, people of lots of different ethnicities and living there, and all calling themselves Uzbek. So. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's like when you said, what, you know, what are the boundaries of when people throw out the word Asian food? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like what's Asian food? It's, it's, it encompasses so much. And, mm-hmm. and that's... But my definition was the continent of Asia. Now, although Turkey's on the continent of Asia technically, I didn't include it because it has lots of different influences. You have the Turkmen influence coming off Asia, but you have Levantine influences, European influences, Arabian influences. It's a very, very complex cuisine um, that is sort of its own... It, it's a study unto itself, I think. So I didn't want to uh, treat Turkish food that way. I, mm-hmm. I kind of omitted it from here. Well, as for um, foods that were originally medicines, and you talked about garlic and rhubarb, is there anything else that comes to mind that was originally used as specifically just a medicine and not ingested as a food? I know, well, I just did a show on turmeric. I, I mentioned that to you before. Turmeric was one that was was not used um, in food preparation until much later. It was always used as a just as a you know a paste, a salve, or you know compound. Anything mm-hmm. else that come to mind? Um, well, lots of things were used in the um, um, the Ayurvedic medicine uh, uh, pantheon. I mean, you have cumin that was used for eye and stomach disorders and um, anti-worming sort of thing, um, and also for cardiovascular. So, I mean, the whole concept of food and medicine started... 4,000 years ago with mm-hmm. TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, as well as Ayurvedic medicine. Um, well, cinnamon was first an incense and a perfume, and then a medicine, or then medicine was added to that. And it wasn't really until you get to uh, Apicius, you know, second and third century Rome, that you start finding recipes with cinnamon in it, just recipes, not meant to help, you know, balance the humors or, or, or anything like that. So... Just a flavor, good food, right? Yeah, I mean, Apicius. Oh my God, there's this wonderful sauce for um, a caraway cinnamon sauce for oysters. How's that for a flavor combination that, that you have? Now that is something. Before? That's something I would have to taste to believe, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are as as with that, there are so many interesting recipes that you have to not the ancient ones, as you said, but but modern combinations for people who they can really try it and get a sense of of the influences from all these other countries. And um, I think it's just, uh, it's wonderful, and I, I love incorporating these all these flavors into new dishes and old dishes. And I look forward to more writing from you and more reinterpretation of historic dishes. And thank you so much for sharing the information with us today on A Taste of the Past. Thank you very much for inviting me. Welcome. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.